Welcome to the podcast for Windsor Road Baptist Church. Prepare your heart to receive God's message. Our church theme last year and this year comes from Mark 11, uh, verse 22, in which Jesus said to his disciples, have faith in God. And we've been using the gospel of Luke in our sermon series to bring this out. Now, to put it simply, our faith in God, our trust in God really matters to him. The writer of Hebrews asserts that it's impossible, impossible to please God without faith. Why? Well, from the very beginning in the Garden of Eden, God had intended, God had wanted and treasured a relationship with humankind based entirely on trust. And when Adam and Eve chose not to trust God, that relationship was broken. The good news is, just as humankind's relationship with God was destroyed through a lack of faith, it would be restored through an expression of the same. And we see this clearly in in Jesus and how he responded to people's faith or lack of faith. The only time that he was amazed was in response to people's faith or lack of. So Christianity, if you like, at its core, is an invitation for us to re-enter a relationship of trust with God through Jesus' death on the cross. In other words, our faith in God is a critical element of the Christian life. And we will see this in the passage we're looking at this morning from Luke chapter 20, verses 41 to 21 verse 4. In that passage, we will first explore the fifth and last controversy between Jesus and the Jewish leadership. And then he issues a final warning to his disciples to not be like the Jewish leadership. He implores them instead to be like the poor widow. The amazing uh, love and the amazing trust that we see displayed by the poor widow. So here's the passage. Then Jesus said to them, why is it said that the Messiah is the son of David? David himself declares in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. David calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? While all the people were listening, Jesus said to his disciples, beware of the teachers of the law. Like to walk around in flowing robes, love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces, and have the most important seats in the synagogues and places of honor and banquets, to devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. As Jesus looked up, he saw the rich putting the gifts into the temple treasury. He also saw a poor widow put in two very small copper coins. Truly, I tell you, he said, this poor widow has put in more than all the others. All these people gave their gifts out of their wealth. But this poor widow out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. From the moment Jesus set foot in Jerusalem, back in chapter 19, verse 45, 
Luke records for us a string of controversies that underscore just how far apart Jesus and the Jewish leadership are. Who initiates the controversy switches regularly. Well, you might remember in the first controversy where Jesus cleansing the temple. And this was followed by the Jewish leadership questioning his right for doing that. And Jesus responds by telling them a confronting parable of the tenants, followed by more questions from the Jewish leadership to Jesus about paying taxes to Caesar and the doctrine of resurrection. These were all attempts by the Jewish leadership to find something in Jesus' answers so that they can discredit him and undermine him. But they were all trick questions, all trick situations to set him up. Jesus gives them nothing. As they stand in silence, unable to offer any rebuttal to his answers, Jesus asks them a theological question of his own about the Messiah's identity, drawing inferences from Psalm 110, verse 1. This is the fifth and final controversy between Jesus and the Jewish leadership at the temple. Authored by King David, Psalm 110, verse 1, was the most popular Old Testament text for Jesus and the early church. It was quoted directly or referenced indirectly at least 27 times. From the Psalm, we learn that the Messiah, the Savior, the Christ, would be a physical, hereditary descendant of King David, the son of David. Now, this was a widely held view by the people in Jesus' day. But Jesus points out a problem, asking, if the Messiah, the Christ, the Lord, is the son of David, why did King David regard him as superior to himself by calling him Lord? Inherent in the question is a cultural assumption in which respect is accorded to a patriarch in that society. Fathers, never mind a king, did not call their sons Lord. And yet, here we have King David paying homage and submits to this figure, calling him Lord. A figure equal to God by virtue of him being seated at God's right hand, exalted to a position of power and authority from where he would rule and where he would be redeeming humanity. And none of this would make sense at all if the Messiah was merely a descendant of the King of David, a human figure, in other words. You follow the the thought, right? So Jesus leaves the question just hanging there, posed for reflection. Luke doesn't record any response from the Jewish leaders. Maybe they heard it and went over their head, or maybe they were seething in anger because there was no ambiguity that Jesus was referring to himself as the Messiah, the Lord, the Christ. And this would later be the claim that the religious leaders used to charge and condemn Jesus with the crime of blasphemy. Blasphemy is the notion that a human being would refer to themselves as God. As the religious leaders shuffle uncomfortably, Jesus then turns to his disciples and cautions, cautions them to not be like them. Why? 
because their spirituality is self-centered and image-driven rather than God-centered and God-driven. And their spirituality that's image-driven and self-centered is expressed in the following ways. Number one, they love walking around in long, flowing robes. A long robe is the equivalent of an expensive hand-tailored silk suit adorned with religious symbols, worn to draw attention to yourself. They love that. They also love to be greeted in the public spaces. And this describes recognition of their exalted status. Next, they insisted on having the most important seats in the synagogues. These seats are up in the front, you know, like here, facing the congregation where everyone can see you. They also insisted on places of honor or banquets. Almost every culture has a seating etiquette, uh, etiquette and uh, Jewish society in Jesus' day was no different. Places of honor are seats that go to people of the highest social rank. And the Jewish leaders wanted those seats reserved for themselves. Now, G Jesus' warning about uh, the Jewish leadership directed to his disciples was absolutely relevant, given that they had acted in ways similar to the Jewish leadership. You might remember when they argued amongst themselves who would be the greatest in Luke chapter 9. Yeah, but guess what? They did it again a couple of chapters later. Who is the greatest? And guess what? We see these types of behaviors in the church today too. I remember after church service, I was greeting a minister at the door. And it was a tradition of this church that the minister would stand at the entrance and exit to greet everyone. Well, I, I, I greeted him and I said, thank you, pastor, for your message. And he replied, with a straight face, I'm not a pastor, I'm a reverend. Okay, I was very tempted to say something back, something curt, thank you Lord, I didn't. I'm not a pastor, you've got my title wrong, I'm a reverend. To illustrate their hypocrisy further, Jesus cites two more examples. The Jewish leadership preyed upon rather than helped widows. Widows in Jesus' day did it tough. They were one of the most vulnerable groups in society. In those days, the standing of every married woman hinged upon the status of a husband. When a husband dies, then all the security and status died with him. And sadly, many were often left destitute. Remarrying was highly unlikely because she was regarded as secondhand goods. So exploiting, in other words, exploiting a widow was a despicable thing to do. And then without any hint of guilt and shame, they would stand up in the public play, praying long pretentious prayers to give the impression that they were spiritual, to give the impression that they were close to God and holy. And again, don't we see such abuses today? Televangelists, 
celebrity pastors, we might call them, living in huge mansions, traveling in jets. They believe God wants them to have, while their donors are struggling financially, with many told that they are to give, even if it means their giving would take them into debt. Because until they do, God will not bless them. And then to show their gratitude to their donors, the donors are encouraged to send in their prayer requests with the insincere promise that they would be prayed for. And we know from certain expose that many of these prayers are just thrown into the garbage bin. They're not looked at by these televangelists at all. Or they might pray, God bless them. Bang, that's it. And Jesus said sternly that they will, people like that will not get away with the hypocrisy and exploitation. Then Jesus went on to offer a counterexample to the Jewish leaders for the disciples to follow. On his way out of the temple for the last time, Jesus is sitting in the court of the women where the temple treasury is. And this is an area where men and women were allowed to be at, except Gentiles, forbidden to the Gentiles, but men and women could mingle freely together in this space. It has 13 trumpet-shaped metal chests for people to put their money in, their donations, their offerings. Jesus watches with interest and purpose as people, both wealthy, the poor, and people in between, placing their offerings into the chests. He sees the rich throwing in big amounts of coins into the chest, making lots of noises in the process. The heavier the coins, the more noises it made. In the midst of people making donations and the noises, a person, one single person, catches the attention of Jesus. It's a woman. But not just any woman, a widow, but not just any widow, a destitute one. In contrast to the rich, she goes to one of the receptacles and places or drops two very small copper coins. And if you see the picture, it would not have made much of a noise. Two small copper coins, that would be it. Contrast the bigger coins. <laughs> and her small copper coins would not have made any noise whatsoever. The King James Version translates the word for coins as mites, M-I-T-E-S, a term derived from the French, mita. It means a crumb or tiny morsel. The reason being these coins are the smallest made, each worth one one-hundredth of a denarius, which is equivalent to five minutes of labor in today's term uh, at a minimum wage. In other words, practically speaking, what the widow gave was worth next to nothing. Okay? In practical terms, it was worth next to nothing. If the rich... If the religious leaders had noticed, they would have snickered or looked away in embarrassment at her pitiful offering. 
But the act of the poor widow evoked in Jesus a completely different response. He's deeply moved, catches his eye. He's amazed. He's touched. He's impressed. And he said, I tell you the truth. I tell you the truth. And that phrase means, I want you to really get this. This poor widow has put in more than all the others. Because all the others gave their gifts out of their wealth. But the widow, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. I want to put to us that what drew Jesus to the widow, what we are to imitate in the widow, is her faith in and love for God, revealed in how she gave, not what she gave, and how she gave. Jesus was showing his disciples, and he wants to teach us. He wants to instruct us. He wants to point out to us that it is not the amount given, but the nature of the heart that gives, that matters to God more than anything else. Yeah? God doesn't care one hoot about the sacrifices you make for him even. If it does not come in faith, if it does not come as an expression of worship to God, it matters little to God. You can be one of the biggest giver in this church, but if the spirit in which you give, if the attitude in which you give is not from a place of worship, Light in God, faith in God. You know what God says? Keep that money. Keep that money to yourself. And this passage isn't just talking about finances, by the way. Yeah? It's not restricted to finances. So the application, don't just think finances here. See, the wealthy, while they threw into the offering chest large amounts of money... Jesus made the point that they simply gave out of their abundance. They contributed out of their surplus. They were giving, in other words, their leftovers to God. They would not have missed what they had given. Oh, um. A company had set up a hotline to answer consumer questions about preparing holiday turkeys. One woman, one woman called to inquire about cooking a turkey that had been in a freezer for 23 years. The operator told her it might be safe if the freezer had been kept below zero degrees for the entire time. But the operator warned the woman that even if it were safe, the flavor had probably deteriorated and she wouldn't recommend eating it. The caller replied, that's what I thought. We'll just give it to the church then. Leftovers. Brothers and sisters, in numerical terms, the wealthy definitely put in far more than the widow did into the offering chest. But in percentage terms, she outgave them. You understand that? She outgave them by a long shot. She gave her all to the Lord, not her leftovers. Now, if we were there, 
How many of you would have been tempted to try and talk her out of giving her two mites? Yeah? Sweetheart, grand-grand, God knows your heart. He understands your situation. Just keep the coins for yourself. Look, I tell you what. How about I give on your behalf out of my pocket? I think she would have said to us, I may be poor, but this doesn't mean I can't give. I may be poor, but that is a poor excuse not to honor my God with what little I have. I will give. Not my leftovers. I will give. Not as an afterthought. I will give because I love God. I will give because I will place my faith in God. She most certainly did not give it, give give what she had to impress God with a a self-righteous attitude like the Jewish leadership. Not with two mites, right? If if you're doing it, impress people, impress God, well, two mites is... (laughs) You can't get self-righteous over that. And had she done it out of a self-righteous attitude, Jesus certainly would not have commended her that was her motivation. And she certainly didn't do it out of greed either. If peddlers of the prosperity gospel are to be believed, which is the notion that the more you give, the better the return, any return on two mites is hardly going to yield much at all. And we also see that she refused to let fear stop her from giving. Oh, I don't have much, I better hoard. No, this is, this belongs to God. I want to give it to God, what little I have to God. She determined that her giving will not be an afterthought, something she would only do on her terms and when it suited her. She determined that giving to God would be a high priority for her because God is her Jehovah Jireh, her provider, her king, her God worthy of her whole being. God will look after her needs. She would depend on him 100%. You see, she wanted a relationship with God based entirely on trust and love, the one that Adam and Eve had with God. And she would have been familiar and held on to passages of Scripture like Psalms 68 verses 4 to 5. Sing to God. Sing in praise of his name, extol him who rides on the clouds. Rejoice before him. His name is the Lord, a father to the fatherless, a defender of widows, is God in his holy dwelling. Well, the passage in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 18, he defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. She will learn to put her complete trust in the Lord for everything. Her sense of worth, her sense of identity, her sense of wealth even, 
will not come from what she owns, what she has, and what she possesses, but rather on her relationship with the Lord, her husband, her maker. She was the kind of person that Jesus spoke of in Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 to 21. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moths and vermin destroy, where thieves break in and steal. She's a type of woman who stores up for herself treasures in heaven, where moths and vermin do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will be your heart also. And this is why, of all those who gave into the treasury that day, only her offering impressed and moved Jesus because it was done out of faith in God and done out of love for God. As an, as an application, I'd like you to reflect on this. Have you ever felt like you have little to give to God? Not just in terms of finances, but in terms of yourself. I regularly meet Christians, including myself, and I'm talking to myself. God, I, I have so little to give you. I'm not a general in your army, not even a soldier in your army. I'm a reservist. <laughs> I don't belong in your army. I mean, you feel like, oh, I'm not talented. I, I'm not, you know, I've got character flaws. I, God, I'm just. Why would you want me to serve you? Why would you even want to recruit me? I'm the last person. I'm like Captain America before his transformation, you know, scrawny. Well, if you like that, be encouraged. The story of the widow's might tells us that God's method of evaluation is very different from the world. When you give of yourself what little you think you have to God is an expression of your love for him, is expression of your faith in him. Your sacrifice moves him. This is why Jesus calls us to imitate the widow. R.C. Sproul, in his commentary on Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, for those who are not familiar, you remember uh, Romans 12, 1 and 2, in which uh, the Apostle Paul wrote, Therefore, in the view of God's mercy, I urge you, brothers and sisters, to offer up your bodies as living sacrifices to God. This is our true and proper worship to the Lord. Well, I see Sproul writes, God does not ask us to bring in our livestock and bring, burn it on the altar. He asks us to give ourselves to ourselves on the altar. To be a Christian means to live a life of sacrifice, a life of presentation, making a gift of ourselves to God. Some people think that all it takes to be a Christian is scribble a check or to give a few hours of service here and there and special projects for the church. But that's not what believers are called to. My life, my entire life is to be set apart and consecrated to God. That is what is acceptable to him. That is what delights him. That is what pleases him. That is the appropriate response to him 
and for him. Of course, this kind of giving that we see in the widow that God calls us to grasp ultimately models after himself. God did not hesitate to put everything on the line for us when he sent his son Jesus to die on the cross for our sins. Paul writing in Romans 8.32, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Let me repeat. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? You know that's what he did. But he continues to be like that. He continues to be for us, not against us. In closing, I'd like us to sing King of Kings, Majesty. Our response, our response to the Lord. Before we do that, I'd like us to pray. Seated where you are, can you find in your wallet, in your purse, the smallest coin there is? Or the smallest note there is? If you have five cents, yeah, take it out. Hold it in your hand. If the smallest uh, amount of money you have is a $5 note or $2 coin, take it out. Take it out. If somebody doesn't have any, do you mind? Uh, those of you who have a few coins, maybe you can loan it out. I pr- promise to take it back, yeah? How many of you need coins? Okay. Uh, how many have extra coins? If all you got is a credit card, I'll just use the credit card. <laughs> the one with the least money in it. <laughs> the one with the least borrowing limit. So does everyone have a coin? I want you to have something in your hand because we're going to pray. Who needs, who still needs something in your hand? Everybody got it? It's all right. Hold, hold your credit card. Okay. Smallest coin. Yes, you got your smallest coin, smallest note. Okay, we're going to pray together. I'm going to pray. And then we're going to call the team up and then we're going to sing King of Kings, Majesty. We give our all because... The one we give to, the one we surrender all to, is worthy of all. He's our king. So let's pray. Lord, we offer what's in our hands. It's a symbol of our two mights. And I want to pray specifically in the sense that these two mites represent our sense of unworthiness. I know that, me included, we feel very unworthy. We feel like crap from time to time. Because we know our flaws. We see our flaws. No one has to tell us our flaws. We're very aware of our flaws. 
And often we loathe ourselves for it. And Lord, when we come to you and the whole notion of serving you, the whole notion of being effective, being fruitful, it's just far from our thoughts. For many of us, if we can scrape it into heaven, we'll go, oh, thank you, Lord. I, I, that, that is the prayer that, that I want to pray for, for people who, are, who feel like that. And I would say most of us do. Very, it, it's very exceptional that people feel good about themselves standing in your presence. I think most of us feel that we're not worthy. And for those I pray for today, represented in the mites, represented in the, in, in the amount of cash that we have, the smallest amount that we have in our hands. Lord, we are unworthy. But you invite us today. You say to us today, my children, it is not the amount not the amount. Money or time or whatever it is you think, it has to be huge. Give your mites to me. And for those of you who think you have lots to give, it applies to you too. It's not the amount, it's the heart of the giver that matters. And the heart that I want you to have, my children, is a heart of faith. Faith in me. Faith in the work that I've done for you on the cross. You are unworthy, but through my son, I declare you worthy. You feel like crap, but I want to say to you, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You are the apple of my eye. Not because of who you are, but because of what my son, Jesus, has died on the cross for you. I made him sin who knew no sin so that you can become the righteousness of God. So do away with your condemnation. Do away with your sense of unworthiness represented by the two mites. Offer your two mites in faith that I am who I say I am and that I have done what I said I would do. So would you offer those two mites to God in faith to God, just, just lifting it up? Lord, I offer what little I have in terms of my talents, in terms of my time. I offer it up to you in faith and in worship. I do it as an expression of my love. Not self-righteousness. Forbid it that I offer anything out of self-righteousness. Forbid it that I should offer anything to you out of, out of wanting to impress you. Lord, I offer it out of love. No more, no less. Lord, accept our two mites. We offer it up to you in faith, in trust, and out of love for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. We hope that you have been blessed by the message. Windsor Road Baptist Church is a growing intergenerational and international community of people committed to whole life discipleship. 
please visit us at windsorroad.org.au to connect with us and to learn more about our church.